The Silver Chalice by Andreas Stewart, shared with you via occultstorypodcast.com. Grandfather sat by the open window of his study in the late fall afternoon. His face was fine parchment pasted to the ivory of his skull, and his smile was a feral stretch of lips across discolored teeth. To this day I have never known an uglier soul or one with more hatred for his fellow man. Beside him sat my beautiful cousin, his great niece, and the girl I planned to marry. It was a bit odd, even in that day, for a man to wed the daughter of an aunt. But even I were determined and in many ways the match made sense. Marrying one another meant there was a great deal of uncomfortable family history we would never have to explain to anyone else. We felt we fully understood our past and thus could protect our future. In that moment it was impossible not to see Eve's kinship with the evil old man in the late afternoon light. I noted the twin curve of jaw and brow and saw the likeness in their pale skin and piercing blue eyes. But where grandfather was the dried husk of a human, Eve was in the very bloom of life itself. Ruby red lips, lovely legs, a nubile swell of hip, and an unexpected generosity of bust separated her forever from the old man, as did her desire to please everyone which came from a goodness of soul and an abiding love of the whole wide world. Though Eve and I had oft lived in the same home, we had been all but strangers until recently. Many years before this eventful day I had set out for university. Upon completing my studies I had served almost a decade in the halls of Wall Street, helping our young nation rebuild itself after the horror of the crash. Recently I had been summoned home to take over the family's vast estates, stepping into new shoes as the father of my father died. Eve had been a child when I left, nine to my eighteen. I'd left her the property of nannies and governesses, not nearly ready for her stint at a finishing school or her meager summer abroad. Now at nineteen she was back from both, alone in the world, the sole descendant of her mother as I was the sole descendant of my parents. Against all common sense we found we felt a shared obligation to the family despot who had ruled us for so many years merely because he would leave us so much better off when he died. Of course I will not try to stop you. My grandfather said as he stared out the second story window. The law says you may marry just as the law says you will be my heir. It does not surprise me that the girl has wormed her way into your heart. She is pure evil by nature. I merely warn you by the wayside that your desire for her is unnatural, and to wed her will damn you both. This malediction was not what we might have hoped for from the old man. But nothing that ever came from him was good. His joys, his hates, his loves and desires, were never those of a normal man. One might have expected him to love the beautiful and gentle girl who sat at his side. For Eve was the daughter of a once beloved niece, who was in turn the daughter of a much beloved sister. And yet through some strange alchemy, the old man's love for Eve's feminine forebears had been transformed into an abiding hate for her. As a child she had been hidden from him, never to be seen, never heard, and cared for only because she could not be sent away. That there were only three of our once large family left did not endear Eve to my grandfather in the slightest. Now, in awkward silence, we stared out the window at thousands of acres of our dense northern wood. 
Our property ran all the way down from our eagle's perch high on a ridge to the sea many miles away. We studied the slender spires of our family kirk. It sat just on the other side of a fast-running brook and its peaks stabbed at the sky. We all thought of the private chapel, and below it, the family crypt that housed the human residue of so many of our tragedies. Eve and I would marry there, christen our children there, and in turn be buried there as well. Our wedding was another chapter in the long history of our dynasty. There was nothing my grandfather could do to stop it from being written. Publish the bands both far and wide my girl. My grandfather said to Eve. Tell the whole world of your happy day. I have some sense of the blessings and benedictions you will receive. Then he looked up at me. I hope you will marry soon enough that I can see the wicked deed done. It will comfort me as the worms gnaw my bones. Of course grandfather. Said Eve, laying a gentle hand upon his aged arm. If you wish it, it shall be so. You shall be there to see us. Frail as he was, Grandfather threw off her touch. Do not try your wiles on me. I curse the day you were ever born. Shocked, hurt, the young girl rose, eyes wide in new hurt and misery. She ran from the room in a cloud of floating white silk and silver white hair. I could hear her cries as she fled. Why must you be so cruel to her? I asked. She has done nothing to you. She is the soul of kindness itself. He looked at me, eyes old and bitter in his head. So she seems, young man. But I know better. You would be far better advised to strangle her than take her to bed. You are an animal. I said. I have a wonder that no one has stopped your mouth long before now. He waved me off. Of course. And you are just the man to do it. You who have always judged me. I know you better than you know yourself. So now you may consider that girl my parting gift to you. A poisoned silver chalice into which you will pour your soul. He levered himself to his feet, taking his twin canes in hand, and tried to meet me eye to eye. He was dressed in an old brown suit that fit him ill, ragged slippers on his stockinged feet. The venom that hissed through his pale lips might as well have come from a snake. If you wish to wed her and bed her, make haste before some well-wisher stands in your way. He said. There are many in this world who will not want your union made. And then he wheeled around, stumping out of the library and into the arched entry with its three stories of columned galleries towering overhead. I knew he would now go to his study. He would sequester himself there with his papers and his books, safe behind locked doors, tallying his figures and counting his money until long after the rest of the house was abed. So I left him to himself, and went in search of Eve. I wandered from room to room and hall to hall in the gothic monster my grandfather's grandfather had given us as a monument to his arrogance, money, and power. As I paced the house I puzzled yet again over my grandfather's intense loathing for a girl who had never put a foot wrong. Grandfather was the sixth child and the second son of his father, a scion whose family was rich from centuries of logging, buying, and building. After the death of my grandfather's brother, he became the sole heir to this vast estate. Four of his sisters, born to be only beggars and bargaining chips, had been wed and sent away. The fifth sister, his younger, had been thought addled and thus she was allowed to remain. 
That girl, now called Mad Marie amongst ourselves, had oddly been my grandfather's favorite. By all accounts the pair had been thick as thieves, prone to whispering in corners and wandering the corridors of this castle at odd hours. She was the only one he cared for, and she only cared for him. It was known that my grandfather had taken great offense when, at sixteen, she had been forced to wed a man from the family mill. Not long after she had given birth to a daughter, my own Eve's mother, but had somehow lost what remained of her mind in the process. Meanwhile, Grandfather too had been forced to take a bride. A male heir was required to secure our line and he was of an age to make one. So, as Mad Marie screamed in the attic, he was engaged to the daughter of a local shipping magnate. This was the union of two tremendous fortunes and all the great families from miles around had come to our vast house. Family and friends filled every bed and closet in their determination to see greed marry avarice at the culmination of a century. As it turned out our guests were also witness to something else. After the wedding Mad Marie, distraught and screaming, had stabbed two of her keepers with a knife no one had known she had. She had run down the three long wide flights of marbled steps. Her roars of rage had filled the halls, summoning all within call of her voice, until two hundred had looked down as she stood on the black and white marble of the entry's checkered floor. She called out to my brother and begged him to free her, demanded he steal her away from this house of lies and nightmares. And when she did see him, and he did not deign to help her, she took her bloody blade and drew it from ear to ear across her own throat. She dropped in an instant, head nearly severed, her blood painting the floor ruby red. The wedding, as you might expect, was instantly followed by an exodus, and an instant later by a funeral. Within the year it was followed by another two. My grandfather's parents lost their lives in twin disasters. His father succumbed to too much drink, stumbling down those self-same stairs six months after his youngest daughter was gone. Grandfather's mother had suddenly taken ill, dying in one long night from what began as a cold. Thus my grandfather, forced to marry, was suddenly entirely free to do as he wished. He took his sister's child as his own daughter and settled significant money upon her despite the violent opposition from his newly acquired wife. That woman considered the girl an embarrassment, and this quasi-adoption an offense to the son she had so recently born. So it was that my father grew up alongside Mad Marie's daughter, my Eve's own mother. Despite his place as heir, my father was oddly of little interest to anyone. His mother nursed her rage and bought jewels and clothes. His father spent most of every hour in the company of a little girl. My father, free from notice by almost all, moved to New York as soon as he could. He found himself a wealthy bride and I was myself the result. For five years we lived on the island of Manhattan, my mother and father and me, and were it not for a great sickness that carried them away along with so many others, I am sure we would be happy still. But, as it was, I was alone and thus I was returned to the lands I to someday own. In this, my new house, I quickly discovered my grandfather was lord and master of all and Mad Marie's daughter Eden had become his queen. She had taken my grandmother's place as hostess and manager of all the household's affairs. My grandmother, once a demanding young woman, eventually became an invalid, her palsied hands and empty eyes a testament to the vacancy of her mind. When I knew her she lived in what used to be the servants' quarters above the west wing of the house, 
while even, my aunt, served my grandfather in every other room. And then, one fateful day, Eden announced that she was to marry. My grandfather's fury knew no bounds, but she was resolute. She had her own funds, due to his bequest, and she declared she had a right to a husband and children of her own. My darling Eve was delivered unto the world less than a year after Eden marched down the aisle, and perhaps all might have been well. But childbearing was a terrible risk in those old days, and in the hours after Eve's birth, the lovely Eden died. Like a thief in the night, her husband fled the house, never to be heard from again. What we had left was a beautiful elfin child that I hardly saw from day to day. My clearest early memory of Eve was of finding her in the family crypt. She had been sitting on her mother's grave, whispering softly to herself. She told me she came to the Garden of Stones often to talk to her mother and grandmother. She said she sometimes heard them whisper back. It was no surprise to me that the little girl found the living less kind than the dead. There was no pretense at all that anyone in our house loved her. So, as evening fell, I was unsurprised to find Eve not in the house but in the chapel. What are you doing here my love? I asked. Why seek the comfort of stone when I so desperately love you? It is all gone wrong. She said, weeping as I took her in my arms. I am thrice damned. Spawn of a suicide, a child that murdered her own mother, and now your grandfather's curse upon me. We must not marry Gabriel. You must find another luckier soul. If there is anyone who may be called a bad luck charm, it is that ancient man now haunting our house. Think you I care if he wishes us ill? I wish him in the bowels of hell. We were on a bound to tell him and we have. But I am his heir and the estate is entailed to me. He is soon to die and it is we who will write a new chapter in our family's story. We shall be its resurrection and its redemption. She shook her head and I felt the silver mane of her hair brush across my hands. I heard her whisper. Please Gabriel. I know in my heart it is wrong. I took her by the arms, set her back, and shook her a little to clear her mind. We will marry and we shall do so right away. He gives us encouragement only to give us pause. But we will take him at his word. We will summon the clan, all the lost sisters and all their sons and daughters. We will bring them hence and they will dance at our wedding and then on his grave. Are you sure? She asked, looking up as if I were the Redeemer offering her salvation. Mark me, it shall be so. She started then looked about her. Are you all right my dear? I looked all around us as well. We were entirely alone. Had she heard someone call from outside? She looked up into my eyes. Can you not hear it? Her head jerked up to look behind me and her face turned white. What is wrong, my dear? What on earth has come over you? Perhaps I am going mad. I will confess the light had changed. The repose of the ancient family chapel had somehow been disturbed by the falling of night. But I heard nothing more than a draught stirring the dust, and our own words echoed by stone. She pressed herself to me and closed her eyes tight. Perhaps it is only my own wicked nature pressing on me. She said. My heart tells me winter is coming and if we are not wed by Yuletide we will not marry at all. I felt something ugly twist inside me. I owned her. She belonged to me. I would make her mine at any cost. I wanted that old man to see us walk down the aisle. 
I wanted our joy to become his pain. We shall certainly marry before Christmas. We will wait no longer. I said firmly. I am determined to make you mine. So it was that Eve and I left the church arm in arm. At my insistence we immediately set off in my car, earned by my own hard work in the city, and drove to a printer in town. I took him from his hearth, indeed from his dinner, and with his help we picked out the most expensive of invitations and began making the most elaborate of wedding plans. Much to our surprise, Grandfather made no trouble when we demanded access to his study wherein the records and correspondence of two hundred years were stored. I recall we came home and I pounded hard on the door. I called out loudly, ready and willing to break the door down should he fail to open it. Instead I heard him clamber out of his chair and work his sticks and brittle legs to unbolt the door. When he opened it, I towered over him even as Eve hid herself in the shadows behind me. I made our combined request, or rather our demand, and I saw him look over his shoulder at many piles of paper, ancient invoices, stacks of ledgers, and cabinets filled with files of every kind. Then he smiled and looked at me. Have it all and be damned. The rat's nest is yours along with all my terrible secrets. You will find half a hundred letters from aunts and cousins and other hangers-on unopened on the desk there. Prowl the pit and you'll find at least a hundred more. Summon the clan to your nuptials and have them carry you to your wedding bed. The devil knows nothing will please me more. He left the door wide open as he and his stick sangled past me, and he gave Eve a wide grin and an evil glare as he said. I never thought you could make me happy my dear, but you have managed admirably. I wanted to shove him, wanted to snatch up one of his sticks and beat him to death with it, but I simply tugged a shocked Eve into the room. What on earth did he mean? She asked. How have I made him happy? Is he saying somehow I will hurt you? Hush! I said. It is of no account. The day will come soon enough when we will never have to make sense of him again. I made sure I said it loud enough for the retreating cripple to hear me. As it happened, Grandfather's predictions proved accurate. Before a week was done, Eve was seated at my side opening dusty envelopes to find all the names and determine all the addresses for a family in diaspora. Meanwhile I was making sense of financial records that were hundreds of years old. I found original land deeds filed next to invoices for hay, ancient bank ledgers under shipping logs for revolutionary gun stocks. I discovered deep satisfaction in my ownership. I'd grown up isolated, cast off, and ignored, but moving through these thousands of records it became clear I was soon to be a man of great substance and means. My mills, my forests, my ships, my houses, and working beside me the silver creature that would soon be my wife. When Eve wasn't looking I studied how the light painted her. I embraced her at every opportunity. And I confess I pulled her into my lap more than once, holding her while she tried ever so hard to squirm away. You must let me go. She would say to me. Please Gabriel. I will be yours in all ways soon enough. On our wedding day darling, but not a minute before. Raised by women, schooled in the church, the innocent had no understanding of the import of her words, but I understood them well enough. 
After one such incident I looked up to find my grandfather in the shadows outside the enclave we had commandeered, his piercing blue eyes riveted upon us, and a wild expression I could not interpret. He seemed to find us amusing beyond words and I will confess his satisfaction was the only sour note in my bliss. If he were glad, I knew it was only because he believed someday soon we would be miserable. So it was that in short order hundreds of invitations had been sent, and more were waiting to fly out the door, when I found my darling Eve white-faced and looking down at the big family Bible we had found in the study. As I entered the room, she noticed I was there, and she slammed the cover shut. Without much art she pretended to study her painstakingly tidy list of names as if something wicked hadn't very much troubled her tender mind. I moved to the desk, opened the book, leafed to the page she had been looking at, only to find a family tree carefully made out by a wide variety of hands. I'd seen this strange depiction once before but now in the flickering light of an uncertain electric lamp, I studied it closely. What could cause my love so much distress? I sought my name and found it, then looked for Eve's and did not. In fact, I could not find her mother Reed's name either. I easily found Marie's name but no child was listed under it. Her husband's name was missing as well. From this page it appeared that the dear girl I meant to marry didn't exist at all. While Eve watched, I picked up a pen, I recorded Marie's marriage, the birth of her daughter Eden, then wrote of Eden's marriage and death, and finally my lovely girl's name and the glorious date of her birth. There. I said. You are one of us. Marie's death. She whispered. I looked down and saw that Marie's death date was not listed as the date of her brother's marriage, but as the date of her daughter's birth. Why should someone write that wrong? She asked. I might not have been loved, but why would someone want to deny I exist? I came around the desk, took her in my arms, and said. In this madhouse how can you ask this? Nothing here is as it should be. It never has been. But together we can make everything right. Have courage dear heart. Despite my brave words, a week later I found a letter from my great aunt Margaret. It was tucked in a ledger listing hundreds of payments made over several decades. It was then that my own faith in our future was tested. All the payments in the book were recorded in the meticulous hand of the man I hated most on earth, and they were for larger amounts than I could ever have imagined. My grandfather certainly had sent no such amounts to his other sisters, only to this one. And the note within the record book gave me some understanding of the reason why. Jacob, vile creature that you are, I cannot prove you are a murderer but we both know you are. And perhaps I can prove worse. Marie did not die with all her secrets. I can name a few. They are enough to tear your castle down around your ears and enough take everything you own. I know what I am entitled to, and I know what I will have. Give me what I am to you or will you lose it all including your devil's bride? What I do next depends entirely on you. I knew of no man my grandfather had murdered and no secrets Mad Marie might have had. If those had been the only words in the tiny scrawled hand, I would have tossed the letter in the trash. But the phrase devil's bride flummoxed me. The date on the letter put it soundly within the time my grandfather had been married, but his wife had been in her bower at the mercy of her doctors, nurses, and the laudanum she had died drinking. Had my grandfather had some kind of affair? Eve looked over at me and said. What is wrong, my dear? You have gone so white. 
It was my turn to prevaricate, and being much older I was more a master than she. These figures. I think my grandfather kept a mistress. I said. And I handed her the ledger while pocketing the letter that had been inside it. So much money. She said. And for so long. It only just stopped five years ago. Eve shivered and closed the book before she handed it back to me. It's the most wicked of sins to defile the marriage bed. If grandfather was paying his sisters a well, perhaps he had not only a mistress but the evil offspring of their ungodly offenses as well. I stared at her, certain I had misunderstood her words. Surely, I said, a child of sin is not in and of itself evil. Every son or daughter, no matter how they are conceived, is beloved of God. Does not your faith tell you so? Oh my dear, please do not misunderstand. I have no hate for such lost souls. I do not revile them, but what child born of broken vows and misplaced lust could ever be anything more than corruption? They are the embodiment of sin. I think only after a life of repentance and long after death may such creatures finally reside in God's love. This, I thought, was the mark of the house she had been born into, the Catholic nurses who had raised her and the governesses and tutors who had her all to themselves. They had been tasked to make her an obedient child and a virtuous young woman. How better to do that than teach her to hate any creature that might be born on the wrong side of the bed? wondering if my soon-to-be bride had been taught to mistrust her own desire and the natural yearnings of our bodies, I asked. Is it simply the act of nature that makes such children so unacceptable? If so, are not all children similarly born in sin? Oh no, it is only lust without marriage that is the violation of God's law. She said as if explaining a matter of great import to a child. A wife may refuse her husband nothing. But a woman must not give even a thought to any other. I know you understand this to be so. I cannot believe even your grandfather could be so cruel as to use a woman so. The next day, while Eve dallied in the kitchen helping the cook to make bread, I took my questions to my grandfather knowing only he could give me the answers I had to have. I found him in the rear garden, sitting in the golden sun that rained down behind our castle. He was dozing on the stone bench that watched the little fountain in the middle of the lawn. The last roses of the summer season bloomed around us, and their heady scent made me think of Eve and how soon she would be mine. I sat beside the old man on the bench, and I offered him the letter without a word. His eyes narrowed as he glanced at it, then he gave me yet another of his death's head grins. So many treasures in my spider's nest for you to uncover. He said without taking it. Tell me which one is this? There is no statute of limitations on murder. I said. And your sister seems to think you have killed. Oh yes. I recall the matter now. Well, as Margaret too is dead, I find I do not care. Your sister says you had a mistress. I went on. Will there be many bastards to haunt me after you are dead? He laughed. I like to think one day you will have far more than you can count, if you have any children at all. He said with a lewd grin. But let me speak plain. When you talk of a mistress, I wonder if you think I slipped away often. Do you not know that all I have ever desired has been within these walls? You were dragged here screaming, and raced away at the first opportunity. 
your father and my sisters were the same. I, on the other hand, never wanted to go. So where do you suppose I would keep a mistress if I had one? How could I have hidden her that you would not have known? I stared at him, hearing something dark underneath his cutting words. Had he kept one of our maids here for his pleasure? A cook, perhaps? Perhaps even a nanny or a governess? Had any of those lost souls ever served me meal or given me a bath? I see the postman leaving with sacks of invitations. He said, when I took too long to answer. Your little woman has wasted no time in setting her date. She soon means to make the world know she owns you body and soul. It is not too late to disappoint her. You may yet put her away and avoid your ruin. I will have her. I said firmly. She has a kind heart and spotless soul. It is you who must repent grandfather. It is you who must ask forgiveness for all your sins or shortly you will reside in hell. He cut me off with a wave of his hand. Save your breath, idiot boy. I was damned from birth a second son. Nothing was gifted to me. All I own had to be taken. I turned the whole world on its head to have what I desired. And this is our nature. The very root and vine of our family. Think you we own all this because we are good and kind? He gestured all around us. Our lust for life and all it has to offer, our will to take what we desire no matter how it harms others, this is the madness that consumes us. It is in your heart now. I stared at him. You cannot hide from me. I can see the lust burn in your eyes when you look at her. He said. And you are no spawn of mine if you are not eager to have her. You will not talk of her so. I was enraged to hear him speaking my mind so plainly to me, turning my love for Eve into something ugly and unnatural. Why do we converse at all? He asked. I have handed over all to you. Now I simply wait for your wedding and after that to die. He laboriously rose and shuffled back into the house, leaving me with all his terrible thoughts and unsettling words. I sat in the hot sun and contemplated his hints and indications. My grandfather's brother had died falling from the roof three stories above onto the hard stone that ran behind me. Some said he had been chasing a cat. Some said he had taken a dare. But all we knew for certain was his death had made my grandfather heir. The fountain before me featured a little boy endlessly pouring water that represented my great-grandmother's tears. It had been built in memory of my grandfather's elder brother who had never grown up. Had my grandfather committed the crime of Cain even as a child? I could put nothing past him. Had that been the murder mentioned in the letter? And what of the other thing? The devil's bride. Why had my grandfather rambled on that everything he had ever wanted was in this house? What did that have to do with his sister's letter and all these payments? Why had he spoken of my lust for Eve? An uncomfortable idea nettled me then and I jumped to my feet. I moved to the fountain, took a silver lighter from my pocket, and I burned the yellowed missive right there on the stones. I crumbled the ash into the bubbling water, washing away the ugly thought as if it had never been. No truth could ever come from grandfather, I reminded myself. He was the master of lies. A week or more after all our invitations had gone out, responses began pouring in. My family, a generation or two on from my grandfather's dark rule, 
seemed to welcome the idea of gathering again as a clan. They began making their reservations, planning their arrivals, and sending their gifts. Hundreds of happy notes and warm wishes drove the shadows away from my lovely Eve and from our lonesome house. So it was with some surprise that I woke up one morning and found myself once again unable to find my bride-to-be. Once again I wandered hall after hall, room after room, calling out to her without response. I noted that she had maids in from the local town cleaning and dusting everywhere, and that sheets that hadn't seen the light of day in years were now hanging in the kitchen garden. Eventually I went to the chapel but I didn't find her there. I became very worried then, wondered if my grandfather had somehow made her run away. It was only when I heard something stir behind the altar and beneath my feet that I knew where she had gone. Our crypt, below the chapel, was populated with a garden of graves that took on the era of the dead that resided in them. So we had bodies lodged in walls, in floors, in sarcophagi adorned with ornate statues of those inside. Mad Marie and her daughter were laid in narrow stone boxes side by side, and my grandfather had paid stonesmiths to carve them sleeping in life-sized effigy on top. My Eve stood in the gap between the two stone women, one hand over the heart of both, and on her face I saw a look of such deep worry and concern it made me cry out. My dear, what on earth is wrong? I asked. How is it I find you here in the dark cousin with the dead? I saw her start, then she began to conjure an excuse. But, as if stealing herself to admit a sin, she slipped her hand into her pocket. She withdrew and began to read. I have received your letter of the 18th. I am far too old to travel, and I have not failed to correspond for all these many years for lack of knowing the address. You should not contact me again and you should not, for the love of God and all that is holy, marry. I can only pity you the hell you have been raised in, and I will not rebuke you for not knowing what everyone should know after all this time. But I will trouble to warn you that this marriage must not be. I bid you accept this advice without further explanation from someone who saw Marie send herself to hell on her brother's wedding day. If you must know the reason seek the counsel of Dr. Martin. He likely still resides in town. I took the note and saw that the name and address on the envelope identified a long-forgotten cousin on my mother's side. She was from my grandfather's generation rather than our own. What can she mean? Eve asked mournfully. There is some terrible secret, something no one wants to share. We both know your grandfather means to harm you with it. I think he hates you even more than he hates me. I embraced her, felt her melt into my arms. My wonderful Eve, already flesh of my flesh, and bone of my bone, though our wedding was still three weeks hence. It is no more than madness. You know it thrives in our family. I said. I think we must not marry. She said seriously. Maybe there is some true evil in me. Something we do not know. Her words hung in the air, like a bell that has just been rung and still echoes in the silence. Our crypt was made of shadows and stone. There were stone grates that let the light in, and drains to let the water out. And now in this echoing chamber, I heard something whisper. We must marry. I heard myself become its echo. We must marry. Then, to cover my discomfort, I said. There is nothing but beauty and grace in you my darling Eve. You are all that is good in the world. 
and to prove my words I held her tight to me and pressed my lips hard against hers. I felt the flutter of her heart and the opening of her mouth. My desire like a coiled snake came alive within me. I wanted every inch of her. I wanted to take her here and now with all the dead watching, forcing them to witness us as we were meant to be. And Eve, for once, gave herself over. For a very long moment we lived in a dream where our minds and hearts and bodies were one. I suppose we must have been too preoccupied to notice that we were pushing against Mad Marie's sarcophagus, and perhaps it was more frail than all the others, having been built so quickly from brick after her death. A suicide in her day was buried fast and without ceremony. Marie likely came to her grave before two sons had set on her brother's wedding. I was certain she hadn't heard the words of a priest at all. But what I remember now is that the long stone box Mad Marie was in had cracked, and the heavy lid with her effigy on top had slid a little to one side. When I looked behind my Eve, my eyes were drawn down into darkness. My mind made me believe something pale and hungry shifted inside. My first instinct was to step back and pull Eve away. Still overwhelmed by her first brush with desire. Eve seemed not to have noticed that her grandmother's grave had split asunder as if the last trump had started to sound. Unwilling to have her remember our moment thus, I swept her into my arms and carried her up the stairs into the chapel. We emerged from behind the altar, and I set her feet on the ground. Then I took the vicious letter away and shoved it into my pocket. I will have you hear me. You must not care what a mad woman says about a mad woman. We make our own fate Eve. The past will let go of its hold on us if we will just let go of our hold on it. No, Gabriel, listen to me. She insisted. I will see that doctor. I will know the secret everyone has taken such pain to hide. She was breathless, and I could see the mark of lust still upon her. She would never have been so firm with me otherwise. She would never dare to make so firm a demand if her blood were not already running hot. Why must we? I asked. What can he tell us that will matter? We will not know until we see him. She said. So the next day we began the search for Dr. Martin in town. Eventually we learned he had retired ten years past and that he had a son, also a doctor, who had moved a hundred miles away. As Eve insisted, we made the long journey to see him at his house. We arrived in his seaside town long after dark. Fishing boats bobbed in the little harbor, lights illuminated a hillside of houses. The doctor's office, halfway between sea and sky, overlooked a moonlit bay. Having made our appointment by phone very late in the day, we were grateful when the old man, a little stout, and a little lame, opened the door to our knocking. Once we were settled he said. I have looked into my father's records as you have asked and I have seen many papers related to your family and your house, but I am not among those who believe that death marks an end to privacy, nor am I someone who shares the secrets of others without reason. I am told you plan to marry and you have asked me to advise. You have told me you are first cousins. What I can tell you is that this is not uncommon hereabouts. It usually presents no problems at all. Your mother and grandmother were unfortunate my dear but nothing in my father's records leads me to believe that you two will encounter any trouble at all. I see no reason why you should not be married. But the letter we received said your father would tell us why we must not. Said Eve. It was very certain. 
The doctor looked her up and down, sighed, then looked at me. May I conduct an examination of your bride-to-be? Yes, please. I insist that you do. She said, rising without waiting for my word. But the doctor waited for my assent. If you think that will help us understand, you have my permission. I said grudgingly. I watched her disappear into the man's examining room while I waited in the chamber outside. They spent the better part of an hour closeted together, and by the end I had become quite uncomfortable. A stranger was seeing more of my bride than I had to date, and what if he discovered something, anything, that might stop her from being mine? When at last Eve returned she was disheveled and she would not meet my eyes. It was clear that she had been startled by the lengths the doctor had gone to. She seems entirely well, and ready to wed. If pressed, I will tell you that when close kin marry diseases of consanguinity are sometimes seen in the offspring. I know nothing of your family, and my father's notes about your mother and grandmother are limited at best. He reached into a drawer, withdrew a thick file, and gave us three yellowed pages with closely scrawled notes. The doctor studied us carefully as we made our way through hundreds of words we couldn't read, most of which was Latin we didn't know. It swiftly became apparent that the notes meant to convey something we would never understand. By the time we handed him his papers back, the doctor's brow had furrowed a little. There are always questions that could be asked, conclusions it might be easy to leap to. But I will stand by my science and say, if all is as it seems, there's no reason at all you should not marry. If you discover all is not exactly as it should be after you are wed, you may return and we will solve any problems together. And with that he ushered us out of his house and we got back into our vehicle. And though we had rented rooms in a hotel for the night, we drove all the way back to our manor, so strong was our desire to put our strange moment behind us. About her examination, Eve would say only that the doctor was very thorough. We arrived at home to find the house in pandemonium. My grandfather had been moved to an old nursery on the other side of the house, and his room near the kitchens were a smouldering wreck. Brought in by the maids and our lead man-servant, I saw the remains of an oil lantern in the midst of the soot, and it was in the corner farthest from the bed as if it had been thrown. Not every room in our palace had reliable electric light and my grandfather preferred a lamp to a candle. But in this case he had thrown the thing and almost burned the house down and himself to death in the process. When I met with him hours later to ask what he had been thinking, he smiled at me in the colorfully painted room like an evil child unrepentant about an original sin. If I said I dreamed Mad Marie had come to me, had summoned me, and I declined her invitation, what would you think then? Would you believe my wicked sister misses me? She says she holds a place for me beside her and she shall be my endless torment in hell. You are mad. I said. The idea of killing him had come into my mind and it was proving hard to send out again. And you are deceived and damned, but what of that? He replied easily. I take great joy in knowing you are cursed to follow in my footsteps, only to do far worse than ever I did. I reminded myself that he spoke only to torment me. I left off talking to him and ordered up one of the kitchen boys to be his attendant for the night. I ordered that someone be assigned to sleep outside his room each and every night going forward. My grandfather might be an evil man, but I told myself I was not. Eve, 
my glorious Eve, finally reassured by the doctor's words and examination, was fitted for her wedding gown, and seemed ready for her wedding. And once our guests started arriving I saw her mood became very light. I did notice, as all these near strangers arrived, the occasional sidewise glance at her. I supposed they saw her as the granddaughter of a suicide and wondered if she shared that madness. It was only the night before our wedding as I played billiards with a half dozen cousins, only two I could almost remember, that it became clear there were darker rumors afoot. James, perhaps a decade older than I, a great deal heavier, and far more drunk at the time, draped an arm over my shoulder and leaned in to whisper. Damn me but I can't say I wouldn't take the risk too. She's a pretty wench, and it's clear she loves every inch of you. They say she's your cousin, so why not believe it is so? What? I demanded, jerking away from him as if his arm were on fire. He looked at me blearily, eyes wide, only dimly registering my rage. Did you not know? He asked. At just that moment someone across the room told a bawdy joke and I took the opportunity to pull my drunk guest into the dark hall, then I shut the door behind us. What is this madness? I demanded. Come on old boy, you must have heard the tales. It's said your grandfather has had his way with the women in your family. Your bride's mother, tis said, was all but married to him. When she came up pregnant they married her off but her husband would have nothing to do with her. Tis said she herself was the old man's daughter sired on his sister. I broke my pool cue across the oaf's head and he dropped to the floor like a sack of meal, entirely unconscious, still with his own stick in his hand. Thinking fast, I dragged him to the rear stairs, and left him there, halfway down. Then I returned to the billiard room. The men I'd left behind were talking and laughing, and I made sure to be seen laughing too. I wouldn't let a scurrilous lie steal my either way, and I wouldn't take blame for stopping the mouth of a man who clearly talked way too much. It was after midnight when I went looking for Eve lest someone had said to her the evil that had been repeated to me. This time fearing I would find her huddled in the dark amidst dozens of graves, I took myself to the chapel and then down into the crypt without waiting to make a complete search of the house. If she had heard anything amiss, she would certainly be down below. My electric torch was fitful as I entered the house of the dead. I called out for Eve once, twice, and then walked to where I had found her last, between the stones for her mother and grandmother. I arrived only to have my light die without a last gasp. My love? I called out again. Are you here? There was no sound in response, and after a long moment I decided I was alone. I turned back toward the stairs. Just then, my love took my hand. Are you here? I heard her soft voice say. I felt her head against my arm, turned to embrace her, felt her breath cool against my chest. This is no place for you in the middle of the night. I said as I ran my hand over her long hair and down her back. She was so very frail, clothed only in her nightgown as if she had come from bed. I don't know what lies and rumors you have heard but all is well. She answered softly. She twisted a little against me, moved her body so she became almost one with me, and I found myself holding her tighter. I wanted her now with every fiber of my being, needed her as I had never needed another thing. If I took her here, now, the wedding the next day would be merely a formality. 
I could put all this uncertainty behind us in a moment, if she would just let it be so. I want you. I whispered, pulling her closer. So hungry, so much desire, please take me my love. She whispered. Her words held all the want in the world. I moved to give her what she asked for, to give her the gift she so ardently desired. Hello? Is someone down there? I heard Eve call out. Somehow my darling was not in my arms. She was at the top of the stairs, thirty feet from me. Yet I could still feel her writhing against me. Hello? I called out. Gabriel, is that you? As the fog of desire that had come over me lifted, I saw Eve appear on the stairs, an electric torch in her hand. I looked down at Mad Marie's grave. The scant illumination Eve provided let me see it was now truly falling apart. One corner had collapsed, the effigy head had rolled onto the ground, and I could see a dirty white winding sheet spilling out of one side. Putting my confusion aside, I strode to Eve then. I had to hide the terrible sight from her eyes. What are you doing down here? She asked. We have been looking for you everywhere. For me? Why? Suddenly I remembered the cousin I'd bludgeoned and left bleeding head down on the stairs. Of course they would be searching for me. I was all but the master of this house. There has been an accident. James, the cousin from Boston. He has fallen down. They have driven him to the hospital. They say he might die. I heard something shift behind me in the dark. I was struck then with the knowledge that something evil was loose in our family crypt, something ugly and unholy, animated by a hunger that could not die. I put Eve to bed with warm milk, then drove into town and up a hill to the hospital my family had once built and still paid for. The doctor on call was appropriately reverential. James was not dead, had not regained consciousness, and it seemed that the fall on the stairs had given him a skull fracture. The doctor quietly said he did not expect him to survive. Nevertheless, his wife and daughter came to greet me. They begged my forgiveness that he had drunk too much. They were grateful for my concern. They fawned over me and I felt the terrible power that came with the wealth I was soon to possess. I could kill a man and everyone would worship me still. I benevolently told the doctor to spare no expense in my cousin's care, and wished his women a good night. So it was that I found myself outside my grandfather's room just after dawn. The boy I had assigned him was gone, perhaps already at work in the kitchens, and the frail old man now sat beside a brimming bowl of oats he hadn't deigned to touch. I knew I would see you today. He said. I hear tell someone fell down the stairs last night. There was something of an uproar. A bad omen for a wedding. But I know you won't reconsider. Is Eve your daughter? I asked, coming straight to the point. Did you sire her mother too? The old man laughed, his sudden grin so malevolent it seemed a thing from hell. Oh my dear boy, does it matter? You would take her if she were my grandniece. Why not my niece, my daughter, my granddaughter or all three if it comes to that? Have you the will to give her up in any case? Enough of your games. I said. You will answer me plainly. Surely it is better not to know. Surely it is better only to suspect and never to be certain. He said as if we were friends and confidants rather than the bitterest of enemies. 
We both know you will take her to wife even if you both will be damned. When I left the room ten minutes later, half his meal was down his throat along with the spoon that had put it there. I had returned him to his bed, sealed his mouth, and slid my hand over his face to close his eyes. I left him snuggly covered and apparently peacefully sleeping. The man was in hell at last. I had my answer. Even and I were married before noon that very day and I bedded her before two. I wanted the whole deed done before they found my grandfather's body and before any innuendo could rock my darling bride's unsteady mind. Our consummation was everything I could have imagined. Her wondering response and tender passion drove me to desire her again the very moment the deed was done. Though I knew who she was, and what she was, I also knew I didn't care. Her decades of superstitious indoctrination would never allow her to live with this indelible inherited sin. Should she ever discover the truth, she would believe we had no real marriage, that my bedding her had created her the worst of whores, and our desires were the very darkest of sins. I could never allow her to be hurt in this way. So my grandfather's crimes would be my burden and mine alone. I would find a way to give my darling Eve all her good heart had earned. I would go to the doctor, ask his counsel, and together we would riddle out how she could bear children that would not suffer due to our consanguinity. But today I meant to lay that evil old man to rest. I would bury him beside Marie, constructing a shared grave for the unnatural bear. One from which they could never escape before the coming of the rapture. I wanted him to spend all eternity in the rotting arms of her unslakable desire. After today I would bolt the chapel doors so they could never be opened again. I would ordain that Eve and I should not reside in it after death. I would decree that no child of ours should ever be interred inside. I and my bride would create a new Eden, laying every evil in the grave beside our grandfather. And this could be done because I was a rich man, a powerful man, and one who could bend the world to his will. Eve was my North Star, the only deity I would ever worship the only creature to whom I would ever surrender my soul. Our desire for one another was all that mattered. To it everything, and everyone, must be sacrificed. This is the end of A Silver Chalice. Written by Andrea Stewart. Copyright 2019 Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. More stories of the occult can be found at occultstorypodcast.com.